Our Old Testament reading comes from the book of Ezra. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given, and the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. And there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king, some of the people of Israel, and some of the priests and Levites, the singers and gatekeepers and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem, for the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. This is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe, a man learned in matters of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes for Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, peace. And now I make a decree that anyone of the people of Israel or their priests or Levites in my kingdom who freely offers to go to Jerusalem may go with you. And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God. And those who do not know them you shall teach. Whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of his goods or for imprisonment. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage, for the hand of the Lord my God was on me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods, for I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. The word of the Lord. Stand for the reading of the Psalms. going to read this together um, by sections. So I will begin with the first, and you can respond with the second. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and my foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamped against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be in confidence. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord 
all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. And he will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tents sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. O oh Lord, hear when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me and turn not your servant away in anger. O oh, you who have been my help, cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on the level path because of my enemies. Give me not to the will of my adversaries, for false witness have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. A reading from 2 Peter. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from the God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. <clears throat> we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The word of the Lord. This is the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Mark. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up high on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, 
Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. The Gospel of the Lord. Well, it's a joy to be here with you all at Church of the Cross this morning, to have the opportunity to share with you uh, from God's Word. Um, and I've had a long association, very indirect, with Church of the Cross. I've been part of two of your three uh, daughter churches over the years and really been richly blessed by that. And currently, as uh, Deacon Cheryl mentioned, serving as pastor of discipleship at Resurrection Anglican. And so it's just a joy to be here with you and to bring greetings from the church there. And we're just so grateful for you all in the ways that you have prayed with us and walked alongside us um, in a challenging couple of years. And so thank you for your continued prayers and um, just the many ways you've blessed us. Let me open with a word of prayer, and then we're going to get into our um, time in the God's Word this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Word. We thank you for the fact that it is living and powerful, and that it is there to transform our lives. And so we just pray that you would help us to encounter it in new ways this morning, um, and that as we reflect on the story of Ezra and his example, um, that our hearts would be convicted in the ways that you want to convict us, um, and that you would draw us closer to the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. So one of the realities of owning a vehicle, as you all know, is that periodically as you're driving along, you're trying to point that steering wheel in the right direction, right? You start realizing it's not working quite right. And the vehicle, when you point it straight, starts veering to the right or veering to the left. And you remember as a car owner that, oh, you know what I need to do? I need to take this vehicle to my mechanic and get the car realigned, right? So that when I point the wheel straight, it in fact goes straight. And when you go to the mechanic to get a realignment, you're not asking the mechanic, you know, give me a new car, do something completely different than my car's ever done. You're simply saying, I want my car to get back to doing what it's supposed to do, and that is to drive straight when I point straight, right? I want the wheels properly aligned. And as we look at the, these two chapters in Ezra this morning, I think there's an analogy there, right, in terms of like what we do with our cars and what Ezra is trying to do here with the people of God. He's not coming to Israel to proclaim some new way that has never been before. He's simply saying, as we've gone along, as we've kind of hit those potholes of life, if you will, right, we've gotten a little off course and we need to realign. We need to get back to walking in God's way and to truly following after his word. So just a quick word of background. Um, you all have gone through Ezra chapters 1 through 6, and you've seen the rebuilding of the temple. You've seen the reestablishing of regular worship. And all that happened probably around the year 516 before Christ. Um, and so in today's passage, we're jumping forward in time by quite a bit. Um, you know, scholars debate, as they often do, um, exactly when this happened, but probably at least 57 years between Ezra 6 and Ezra chapter 7. Might be more, but probably at least that. And so there's been some time in which people have been worshiping in the temple, but some things have started to drift. And people's focus on the word of God and following it faithfully has drifted. And so Ezra has this vocation here 
to go to Israel. He's been in exile. He's going to go to Israel and call for a reformation of spiritual life and practice and for a deepening of worship by beautifying the temple. So I was assigned these two chapters, and it's a lot. Um, that reading probably seemed a little long. That's just a part of this. There's a lot, lot more in Ezra 7 and 8. Uh, and there's a lot we could say about these, these chapters, but I'm going to focus on four main observations, and then we'll think about two application questions together this morning. So four main observations. First one is this. As you look at this passage, one of the drumbeats of it is that Ezra's identity is found in the law of God or in the word of God. And you can just see this looking at our opening verses. Verse 6, he was described as a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. Verse 10, he set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and his rules. Verse 11, he's described as a man learned in matters of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes for Israel. Verse 12, this is the beginning of the king's letter now. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven. And we could go on. There are more passages where in, the, in verses in this passage where it talks about his devotion to God's word and to proclaiming that word. So over and over, there are references to this, that Ezra's life is oriented around the law of God. His identity is found there. We live in a world today where there's a lot of talk about identity and kind of making our own identity and figuring out, well, what is my identity? And Ezra doesn't try to discover that identity within himself. He says, my identity is found in God's word. My identity is found in the law of God. And that's so compelling with him, right, that the king himself, right, Artaxerxes, who describes himself as, I'm the king of kings, Artaxerxes looks at Ezra and says, there's something about this guy that I notice. And what I notice is his identity is found in this God. And as Artaxerxes notices that in Ezra, he begins to turn his eyes to the God of heaven. So even though Artaxerxes describes himself as the king of kings, it's interesting to note in verse 12, which we read, that he then notes there's another that maybe is even higher than the king of kings, and that's the God of heaven. We didn't read verse 23 of chapter 7, but in that verse... Artaxerxes writes, whatever is decreed by the God of heaven, let it be done in full for the house of the God of heaven, lest his wrath be against the realm of the king and his sons. Ezra's identity in God and in God's law was so deep and so compelling that it led this pagan king to see there is a higher authority than me, and I better submit myself to it. Right? That's how deep his identity was. What a powerful identity in the law of God. The second point I want to observe in our passage this morning is that not only is the law of God where Ezra finds his identity, but also the hand of God is what guides Ezra's life. And again, let's look at several verses here that show this. In verse 6, again, our opening verse, it says, Ezra was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given, and the king granted him all that he asked for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Then verse 9. On the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. For the good hand of his God was on him. And then down in verse 28. Ezra says, God extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors. And before all the king's mighty officers, I took courage. For the hand of the Lord my God was on me. 
And one more, in verse 22 of chapter 8, I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him. And so Ezra is guided by the hand of God that is on his life. And it's interesting to note, if you look at verses 6 to 9, there's an escalation. Um, the first one says, the hand of the Lord is on him. And the second one specifies the good hand of the Lord. It's not just that the Lord is doing something, but he's doing something for good in Ezra's life. Um, Robert Alter, in his work on the Old Testament, has talked about the importance of repetition, right? The repetition, of course, emphasizes something uh, we're meant to say, oh, take notice of that. This is repeated. But often, the repetition doesn't merely repeat. It kind of escalates. It says, like, not only is it the hand of the Lord, it's the good hand of the Lord. And so you notice that here in Ezra. Now, I want to pull back the veil here for just a second um, because, you know, of course, the reality of preaching is you have to prep preaching, right? You have to think about the word, and you're thinking about, like, and how do you order it? And it's not like it's always, like, crystal clear how we should order it. And one of the things I wrestle with in prepping this message is, well, which one of these first two points is one and which one is two? <laughs> um, and I'm not really sure. I went with the order in the Bible because that seemed like a safe choice, right? Um, the Bible put um, the law of God and then the hand of God. So I thought, well, we'll go with that. But honestly, they both seem kind of like point one, or maybe they're both non-negotiable. They're both necessary. Um, in Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book on discipleship, Bonhoeffer talks about um, the importance of both obedience and belief, right? He says only believers obey and only the obedient believe. And it's kind of this circle for Bonhoeffer, and it's not quite clear where do you jump into the circle, right? You need them both. You have to obey to believe. You have to believe to obey. Right? And I think this, there's a little bit of that kind of relationship here in Ezra. You need to have your identity found in the law of God, and you need the hand of God to be upon you. Which one's one? Which one's two? Well, I don't know. They're both one and two, right? Um, they're both absolutely necessary. So Ezra finds his identity in God's word, and thus he relies on God's guidance. This is true belief. He says, I'm willing to rest all that I am, all I'm going to do, on God's word and on God's hand on me. And we see that God does work through him, right up to the very highest levels of the kingdom. The king himself has his behavior change, his thought change, because of Ezra's commitment to God's word and his guidance by God's hand. We saw that beautifully in our psalm this morning as we proclaimed this. I love Psalm 27. In fact, this is a psalm we um, read at my ordination a few months ago, so it brings back good memories there too. But the psalm says, calls us to seek the face of God. Seek the face of God continually. This is what ought to orient our lives, and that is what orients Ezra's life here in this passage. So Ezra's identity is found in the law of God. The hand of God guides Ezra's life. And then third, we see that teaching the law of God is Ezra's call or vocation. We saw this in verse 10 of chapter 7. Not only does Ezra study the law of God and know the law of God, but he also does it, and he teaches it. In other words, he's not the kind of teacher who's like, well, let me tell you some theories about stuff, and then hopefully they work for you. I've never actually tried them, but, you know, maybe it'll be good for you. No, he does it, right? He's lived this. He studied it. It's changed the way he lives. And then he goes to God's people and says, here's a good path. Here's a good path that I have lived and that has transformed my life. Enter into that with me. So he's the kind of teacher who's leading by example. And we see in verse 25 that the king then gives him a threefold responsibility. He says, okay, you're committed to this law of God. You're committed to teaching it. This is a good law. 
So guide God's people in it. He sends them to find others to help him in the work of teaching. None of us is sufficient in ourselves in teaching. Um, and so he says, find others to help you in this work of teaching the people and guiding the people in the law of God. And then, obviously, you yourself will be teaching people the law. And also, you'll be correcting those who are deviating from the law of God. And I think you'll see more about that um, in the message next week, how Ezra um, engages in that. So he has this threefold responsibility to appoint, to teach, and to correct. So Ezra knew being guided by God's hand, living by his law, was the path to being who we're designed to be. And so he says, I want to enter into that with the people of God and help them enter that more fully. The fourth thing I want to observe from the passage together this morning is that Ezra's heart's desire in all this is for God's glory. He's driven by a desire to see God glorified. In preaching on Ezra chapter 2, Father Christian talked about the mourning that happened among some who, who looked at the newly built temple and remembered this is not what we had before, right? This is not as glorious as Solomon's temple. And he rightly noted, right, that as Christians, we're called not to focus on those past glories, but to faithfully follow God in, pre in the present. What does God want to do now? How are we supposed to be faithful now? And I think that's such an important application point. And we see that with Ezra this morning. He says, what is God calling us to do now? He's not looking back and saying, like, what, did, what happened with Solomon's? But he does say, but there's a truth here that this house could be more beautiful and it could be more reflective of who God is. And so he has this rejoicing. Uh, he's rejoicing that, that God is giving him the opportunity through the kind of good auspices of the king to go and to beautify the house of God so that it can more accurately show the glory of Ezra's God. And you notice when he, when he is responding to the king's letter in verses 27 and 28 of chapter 7, he begins with that. Not with God's steadfast love is on me, or not that the king is showing me favor, but that we have this opportunity to have the house of God beautified and made more appropriate. And I was just noticing that even this morning, being here in your space, I love this space, and I love the way you all beautify the house of God. And, you know, do we have to have that? No, we don't have to have that. We can worship God anywhere. But there's something so appropriate about saying, let's make the house of God beautiful so that in some small way, it reflects who our God is. And Ezra is rejoicing in that and saying, we have the opportunity to do that. Let's do that. The glory of God is so important to Ezra. We see that also in our last three verses, in chapter um, 8, verses 21 to 23, where Ezra gathers God's people to go to the land, and he, he says, we're going to humble ourselves before God, we're going to fast, we're going to trust in God for protection. I mean, look at the language there in verse 22. He was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, because we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him. Now look, this is not some kind of perpetual principle of you can't ask for protection from secular authorities, right? Like that's not the point here. In fact, when you get to Nehemiah, you'll see that Nehemiah does accept such protective help. Or you can think back to the New Testament and Paul at different moments is, you know, he'll, he'll certainly talk to the Roman authorities like, hey, there's a plan to assassinate me. Could we figure out a way to protect me? Or claiming his rights, like, are you allowed to beat me as a Roman citizen? I don't think so, right? Um, so this is not a perpetual principle that we can never ask for protection. But it tells us something about Ezra's heart. It says Ezra's heart is to lift high God's glory. He wants to do that by beautifying God's house, and he also wants to do that by having God's greatness praised. And he says, you know, we, I made a big point. 
to the king that God is able to protect. And I think in this moment, we're called not to accept the king's protection, but to trust God's protection. We couldn't read everything in 7 and 8 again, but go home and read the rest of chapter 8, and you'll see God honors that. Right? God does, in fact, um, protect um, Ezra and the people and bring them safely to the land. All right, so as we think about these four points together, I want to just um, close by reflecting on a couple of application questions for us as we think about, like, so what does this mean for me? How do we walk out of here and say, how, sh- how then should I live? What should I do um, in response to this? So two, two questions for us to think about together. The first question for us is, are our lives defined by God's word? If you go back to 2 Chronicles 12, um, there's this example of the king Rehoboam. And Rehoboam was not a terrible king. He did some good things in the, in the chronicler's account. But when the chronicler sums up Rehoboam's reign, he says this, Rehoboam did evil, for he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. He did not set his heart to seek the Lord. I think when we read Ezra and we hear about Ezra setting his heart to follow the Lord and his law, there's this stark contrast between doing evil because you don't set your heart, right? Not that you do nothing good, but ultimately you don't set your heart, therefore you go into evil. Or do you follow Ezra's way? Set your heart to follow the Lord, to follow his law, and do good, right? To live as we're called to live. And the thing about this that comes through so clearly, I think, in this reading this morning, is everyone knew this of Ezra, right? It was, you know, the king saw it, the words of Ezra proclaimed it, um, his actions made it clear, the people who followed him knew it, right? He he was so invested in God's word um, that he was teaching it and helping others teach it um, and correcting those who were going astray. Um, This defined who Ezra was. Are our lives defined by God's word in that way? And, you know, I think when we hear that idea of, like, teaching the Word of God, that can be a little intimidating. Some of you might be thinking, well, like, I'm not called to get up and teach. I'm not called to go lead children's ministry and teach. That's fine. We're not all called to do that. But I think we are all called, in some sense, to teach God's law. You go back to Deuteronomy 6, and it talks about how do you teach, right? That Word should be with you when you get up and you sit down. Proclaim it to your children. Share it with your children. We are all called to teach in that way. We each have relationships with other people. Are we bringing God's law to bear on that relationship? Are we bringing that in where God lays that on our hearts, say, what does God have to say? Are our lives defined by God's word? Would someone else look at you or look at me and say of us, yes, he or she has set their heart, study and do and teach God's word. When you and I decide what we believe, is our decision defined by God's word? or by our own desires. When we decide how we'll use our time or our money, is that decision defined by what God says is important or again, by what I want in that moment? When we decide how we will act, do we do it because God's word says it is good or for some other reason? Are our lives defined by God's word? I grew up as a missionary kid in a Muslim country, and one of the the labels that Muslims will put on us as Christians is, you are people of the book, which is not a bad label, right? It's like, yeah, that's pretty good, great, I'll kind of take that. People of the book. But I think one of the questions we have to ask ourselves is, are we, in the way we live, are we people of the book? Are we defined by God's word? Um, Is that actually true of us? So the first application question, are our lives defined by God's word? The second application question for us to think about are, are our actions 
driven by God's glory. When Ezra blesses God in chapter 7, verse 27, he begins by noticing that God is the one behind the good that is happening. God is the true king of kings. I mean, sure, Artaxerxes' letter says, you know, the king, Artaxerxes, king of kings. Ezra knows better. He knows who the agent is. He knows who's acting here. And so he gets excited because God is working through this king. God is doing this great thing to allow the house of God to be made more beautiful. And it's only after that kind of focus on God's glory, God is acting, God is giving this opportunity for beautification of the temple, that then Ezra says, oh yeah, and also God's steadfast love rested on me, right? Which is, we might have started there. I might want to start like, God loves me, right? And then go from there. But Ezra focuses on God's glory first. Are our actions similarly driven by God's glory? Ezra's ashamed, as we noted, to do anything, even seek protection, if it would lessen God's glory and God's honor. We have to ask ourselves, do we, do we think like that? Do we seek God's glory before other goods in life? Do we ever think about whether what we would do might take away from God's glory and then change our actions to promote it? And i got to say, as I was you know, preaching, I think one of the challenges of preaching is you end up being convicted probably more than the people you preach to. Right? You're always like, oh, yeah, I should do better at this. Right? This is not something I necessarily have at the forefront of my life. Right? Is what I'm doing in this moment is that bringing glory to God. And that was very convicting for me, kind of coming through this passage in Ezra and saying, wow, what an example by Ezra. Because I think Ezra looks at me, and he looks at you, and he says, you should, right? You should be thinking about God's glory in your actions, and that ought to transform the way you live. How often is that true of us? So as we close this message this morning, I just want to tie this in with where we are in the church calendar. Because this week, as we've already referenced in the service, uh, we will begin Lent. Uh, we are entering into this season where we're called to self-examine before the Lord, um, to remember our own limits, our mortality, um, and to turn to him. And I think these are such good questions um, for us to use to orient ourselves during this season of Lent, to have a truly holy or a truly set-apart season of Lent. What are ways we should be more fully orienting who we are and what we do by the word of God? What are ways our actions should be shaped by our desire for God to be glorified. So Church of the Cross, may God grant each of us a holy Lent, and may he help us to grow in these ways in our life in him. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.